Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for February 3rd, 2021. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am a member of the Gestalt IT Justice League. And joining me is one of my co-founding members, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the Watchtower. How are you today? I think you're mixing your comic books there, uh, Dr. Strange, but uh, I think I'm okay anyway. All right. Well, we've got a bunch of big stories coming up and we want to dive right into them because I don't know if you guys saw this or not yesterday, but we had some really big tech news after the market close yesterday was another earnings call. Um, amateur astronaut and current Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos announced that he will be stepping down from that role effective Q3 of this year. Um, he will maintain chairperson of the board role, and he does have some engagement in some of the special projects that are going on inside of Amazon, as well as a couple of those side hustles that he's developed, you know, trying to become a media baron and a giant philanthropist and potentially trying to kill Superman. Um, succeeding him, though, and this is the exciting part, is current AWS CEO Andy Jassy. Uh, Andy is a huge figure in the tech community. He is well-beloved by everybody that knows him. He was long considered to be the dark horse in the CEO succession race because everyone pretty much figured that Jeff Wilkie, who was currently the CEO of the consumer side of the business, was going to get the nod. However, last August, it was announced that Wilkie would be stepping down this year, clearing the way for Jassy to step forward. Now, why would you want to put Andy Jassy in charge of Amazon? Well, it turns out, um, yeah, he pretty much has grown AWS to an unbelievable amount of success. You know, that little cloud computer organization that they put together on the side to support that little online bookstore that they built? Uh, yeah, it's now responsible for the majority of the profit of Amazon. The company posted their first $100 billion quarter ever. AWS posted a 28% revenue growth in Q4. Now, get this. 52% of the operating income for Amazon as a whole comes from AWS. Stephen, what does this mean for the future of AWS and the future of Amazon as a whole? Because honestly, does this mean that we can finally agree that Amazon is a cloud company that ships things on the side with Andy Jassy being at the helm? And quite honestly, you know, Andy's the, the exciting story, but I kind of wonder what Jeff Bezos is going to do now that he has 35 extra minutes of free time on his hands. Yeah, I, I really feel like the big story here is not that Jeff Bezos is stepping down or stepping aside. In fact, Jeff Bezos is stepping up. He's doing the cool thing that all the cool kids are doing these days and becoming executive chairman. Executive chairman means, um, I guess, Commodore on Star Trek. You know, essentially he gets to, uh, you know, hang around. He can sit in the captain's chair if he wants to. You know, he gets to talk to the aliens and make the big decisions and uh, and then jet off back to sp uh, space dock when he's uh, gets bored with it. And, and this is really this is what's happening again and again at a lot of these tech companies where you've got these charismatic founders becoming executive chairman. And actually, it really masks their uh, or matches their uh, persona in the company pretty well as well, because essentially, um, you know, the executive chairman is the person who's going to, you know, like I said, sit on the Senate committees, talk to the important, uh, you know, uh, customers, um, you know, I'm sure that he's still going to send like a few Jeff letters here and there um, to make sure that everybody stays in line and the corporate culture stays whole. But at the same time, he gets to do his playboy lifestyle, which increasingly seems to be important to him. 
I mean, if you guys are following from the outside, you know, there's a lot of, you know, jetting off on yachts with models kind of things going on there. And, and frankly, um, I imagine that the Amazon people were kind of sick of that. So, um, uh, frankly, I'm just excited to have Andy Jassy in here. Um, I'm also excited, let me just say, that I don't work for Amazon um, because Andy Jassy is, by all accounts, a lot like Bezos in that he's somebody who pushes for, uh, he pushes A players to be A plus players. Um, he's the smartest guy in the room. Um, he's the most dedicated guy in the room. He's an idea man, but he's also you know, focused on executing. And um, one of the things too that I'm really liking about this is that apparently he's one of those people that can delegate because Amazon has, last I checked, 5,987 different uh, web services that they offer to customers. Oh, it's 5,959 now. Anyway, they, they change it constantly because they're constantly innovating. They're constantly rolling out new things. And unlike Google, they're constantly not killing them and constantly making them awesome. So essentially, we've got the guy responsible for um, Amazoning Amazon, and now he's sitting in the captain's chair. And I think that that's probably good news for Amazon. Um, I think the Amazon staff are going to love this because they're all, you know, into that corporate culture, and so is Jassy. I think Amazon shareholders ought to love this once they figure out who Andy Jassy is, um, which to us in the tech space has been kind of hilarious to watch them be like, wait, who? Because of course they're still like, wait, what? When they talk about AWS, but like you said, AWS is more than half the company. So I really think that this is a tremendous move for Amazon. Um, essentially Amazon has their Satya Nadella or their Sundar uh, Pichai and, and they're gonna roll with this thing. And I think this is, it's all gonna work out. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is kind of that, that moment when Bill Gates stepped down from Microsoft and everyone's like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? Um, I don't think though that we're going to see the same situation that we had with Steve Ballmer where things were a little bit listless for a while before they got their Satya, um, that Amazon is going to pick up and they're going to focus on what needs to be focused on, which is making great cloud computing um, things, uh, continuing to grow that business, taking that same kind of mentality out into what everything else that they're doing and leaving the other newspaper rocket save the planet businesses to the side where quite honestly they belong i mean we've seen this uh, in the other tech areas when a uh, friend of the show larry ellison who happens to run a large database and cloud company seems to be obsessed with sailboats and that has caused a material impact to his company and things didn't get better until he stepped aside and let sapper cats and um Mark Hurd start doing things for Oracle. So I think that this is really going to be great because I don't think Andy has any aspirations to launch himself to Mars anytime soon. Yeah, if I can add in there, um, you know, so I don't personally know Andy Jassy, uh, but I know people who do, and they are very impressed by the man. And certainly one of the things that I hear again and again is um, that you know, no matter, you know, kind of no matter what your position is, if you work with him, he is dedicated to moving this thing forward. He's dedicated to pushing this thing ahead. And, and I think that that's good because like you say, honestly, I feel like Jeff Bezos is uh, too Elon Musk for the role anyway. And I'm glad to see him gone uh, or at least partly gone because I feel like Amazon's going to do even do even more Amazon now. Um, another thing I'll point out, like you said, um, some of the uh, folks who, who do know the company a little bit 
Um, you know, I heard on the news this morning, uh, I think it was Marketplace, uh, they were speculating that Amazon might spin off Amazon and become AWS. No, 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 no. That's not what's going to happen here. Amazon's going to become even bigger with even more fingers and even more pies. And um, all of it just is going to support AWS. Um, one of the lessons from history in the tech industry is Intel. Um, you know, a lot of people were kind of scratching their heads over some of the businesses that Intel got in, but essentially everything Intel always did under the classic Intel, at least, we'll see what the what Gelsinger does with it, but everything Intel always did was basically to support the sale of more CPUs. So they got into all sorts of adjacent markets in order to support their central market, and that was incredibly smart. AWS is that for Amazon. Everything Amazon does is now going to support the growth and dominance of AWS. And also, in case you're not clear, just understand the dominance of AWS. AWS is the world's largest enterprise storage provider. AWS is the world's largest compute provider. It's the world's largest AI platform. It's the world's largest business intelligence platform. It's the world's largest basically everything in the computer industry already. And this company has another, you know, $50 billion of market to eat before it's uh, satiated and it's gonna do that. So I feel like this is just a tremendous move forward. Um, Tom, let's shift gears here a little bit to talk about some uh, other stories that we're seeing this week. Um, what's the fastest way to steal $50 million? Well, for some executives of a regional internet uh, registrar, Afrinic, it was IPv4 address space. Um, a security researcher named Ron Gilmet has been tracking the fraudulent use of addresses assigned by Afrinic to some unsavory users. And after publishing his findings, managed to get an internal investigation started. Afrinic announced that a single worker had sold off the IPv4 addresses, which are pretty scarce and in demand, uh, between uh, $25 and $15 per address. Over a million of the addresses have been recovered, but there are still more out there. Um, Tom, we've been talking about IPv4 and IPv6 and addresses. Does this create more trust issues? Yeah, one of the problems that we have is that ISOC, the Internet Society, kind of delegates the assignment of these addresses to the five uh, regional internet registrars. The problem is, is that the US and Asia PAC are out. Like there are no more addresses to be found, which creates scarcity. Well, what happens when a resource gets scarce? It gets expensive. And that's one of the things that we're starting to see happening is, you know, Microsoft is reclaiming large blocks of these address spaces that were assigned to other places and they're offering kind of as a, as a brokerage, which technically isn't even legal because only Aaron or LACNIC or Afrinic or any of the other RIRs can do that. In fact, they've even changed their language to say, you don't own the address space anymore. You're just leasing it from us for an extended period of time so that we can reclaim it whenever we want. Afrinic seems to have gotten in on a slightly different business model. And Really, so you're probably just sitting there shrugging your shoulders going, well, why should this ultimately matter? Well, one, it violates the terms of service of the RIR. You have to have a business in that region in order to use those addresses. So I can't just go buy address space in Africa unless I have a business that is either headquartered or you know majority owned, say, in Cape Town or in Cairo somewhere. And in and of itself, that may not have been too bad. People might have been willing to look the other way. It's the fact that when when Gilmet started doing all this research, he turned out that it was a bunch of fly-by-night marketing firms and a bunch of kind of unsavory characters that are using these things for other purposes. He also did some research and found out that uh, one of the companies that uh, I believe it's called DDoS Guard that is offering web hosting to some uh, 
less than popular websites is based in, uh, they have LACNIC address space, but they're not based in Latin America. This is going to be a problem. And considering the fact that the guy who did it basically would just grab blocks of addresses and sell them out the back door, kind of like people would sell, you know, appliances out the back door of an appliance store illegally. Um, it's going to be difficult to recover that address space. I heard something north of 2 million addresses were sold. And in a market today where we're scrambling and the price just keeps going up and up and up, that's problematic. So I think what's going to have to happen is the ISOC is going to have to put more oversight on the RIRs as we as this address space dwindles and we realize that these things are going to have to be preserved. Or, I mean, the other alternative is we just make everything IPv6 and the problem goes away for another 50 years. But at this point, that's trying to get blood out of a very dry turnip. So I don't know how we're going to make this work. Yeah, I think that this is a really interesting story. And again, if you if you kind of are like scratching your head over this story, just understand that um, the the dwindling supply of IPv4 addresses, um, the prohibit prohibition on selling IPv4 addresses, the regionalization of uh, you know address uh, management, all of these things kind of came to head in this one kind of remarkable story. So Tom, turning again to a different uh, new story here, um, we learned this week that Israeli-based networking company DriveNets uh, has received a $208 million Series B funding round. Uh, this is a tech field day presenting company. So if you wanna learn more, you can check out their presentation. Um, and they're doing big things in the service provider and hyperscale networking space by using their software to build white box switches into virtual hardware chassis. Um, along with the announcement comes news that AT&T is a customer of DriveNets, and uh, this funding round pushes the valuation of the company over the billion-dollar mark, making them, yay, a unicorn. Is this big news for hyperscale networking startup community, Tom? I think it is, because the companies that are trying to like, basically bet on their next big winner are starting to look in this space, and that's something that has been needed for a while. I'm sure a lot of folks out there have kind of talked about maybe this little bit of a reality distortion bubble that exists around Silicon Valley, where companies are building equipment for companies that, that are based in Silicon Valley, but that don't work anywhere else. DriveNets is not doing that. Well, first of all, they're well outside of that bubble because they're based out of Israel. But they, they recognize the need for telcos like AT&T to essentially take white box hardware, things from Quanta and uh, Edgecore, and build them into essentially a chassis, but instead of having like all that specialized R&D to make the hardware work and building it into a half rack sized box, you can spread this across the top of rack. You can do a lot of other things with it. Essentially, it's kind of a custom spine and leaf architecture for the networking nerds out there in the audience, but you can get 768 terabits of throughput through white box switches, which should be enough to raise anybody's eyebrows. And in fact, it, it raised $208 million worth of eyebrows. So I think what we're going to see is that other companies besides DriveNets are going to be successful in getting maybe if they've gone through a Series A, they're going to get a Series B because this could be the kind of networking equipment that penetrates the hold that a lot of other large vendors have in the service provider market. It also makes a very attractive offering to larger companies doing it themselves like Amazon, Microsoft, Google cloud play providers that need this kind of expertise in-house to enhance their offerings, maybe not to sell to customers, but to sell the services on top of that 
back to customers. So I think this breaks the market wide open because, you know, two, first of all, being a billion dollar valuation makes you a hard target to acquire anyway. But then the question becomes, who's going to buy you first, a company to sell your stuff or a company to buy, use your stuff to sell other things? It's a good question. I'd also like to call attention to the fact that uh, this is their Series B. So this is not a company that became a unicorn after a Series F or something. I mean, this is a company that basically used the A round and the angel funding to build something interesting, something useful, something that a company like AT&T would buy and is using the Series B to step on the gas. Um, it looks to me like they're doing it right. Yeah, and good luck to the folks at DriveNets. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the cool stuff that they're working on, they will actually be presenting at our upcoming Networking Field Day event on, uh, in February. Uh, check the website techfieldday.com for more details uh, about the lineup for that event, as well as the time to tune in to watch DriveNets present. All right, Stephen, uh, let's shift gears and, and talk a little bit of fake money. Um, business intelligence company MicroStrategy has become the leading Bitcoin fund on NASDAQ. They have purchased over a billion dollars of the digital gold, and they are seeing their stock price rise even faster uh, than the value of the hoard of cryptocurrency that they're currently sitting on. CEO Michael Saylor is hosting a Bitcoin for Corporations event this week, encouraging others to use Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset. Will corporations really switch from the standard of the U.S. dollar over to Bitcoin, or is this just a kind of a pump scam for the stock? Stephen, you've been following the story really closely. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, it's been an interesting, uh, interesting role uh, with them. So I, I first, um, honestly, I didn't really even know much about MicroStrategy in the core business that, that they provide, even though it is an enterprise software company. Um, they, uh, yeah, they, they sell, you know, basically some business intelligence software and they're moving to software as a service and cloud and uh, all that's great. And oh yeah, back in the summer, they decided to put all of their corporate reserve, which was about a half a billion dollars into Bitcoin. And everybody said, wait, what? Now it's important to note that they didn't do this quite as rapidly as some of the some of the people are saying. They actually spent half the corporate reserve buying back their stock and the other half they invested into Bitcoin. And then they rapidly invested more. And so basically throughout the second half of 2020, the company poured all of their excess, excess cash into Bitcoin. Um, that seemed to be a really, really, really good idea financially because essentially the price of Bitcoin doubled uh, their cost basis is currently, I think, about 60% of the value of uh, the Bitcoin that they've bought. Um, in uh, December, January, they uh, basically, they, they actually went out and, and, and issued bonds to raise even more money, another you know, $600 million or so, and buy even more Bitcoin with, with debt. Um, and again, that was like, wait, what? So essentially, the company has bought uh, now, as of now, by my reckoning, about uh, $1.2 billion uh, they've put into Bitcoin. And that hoard is worth about $2.2, $2.3 billion now. Um, and that looks like a very shrewd investment. Um, but that's not really what they're talking about. Um, so I was on their earnings call last week when they were talking about this, and it was it was pretty hilarious, just the cognitive dissonance of the thing. Because on the one hand, they're saying, you know, and our core software products and services and blah, 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 blah. And then Bitcoin. 
and it, and it was like you know just kind of like this weird night and day situation with them. Um, you know, essentially, they are a moderate size business to business software company that just happens to be sitting on a mountain of gold. And what's happened to the stock price has reflected that. So the company's price, uh, stock price has gone up and up and up, and it keeps going up. Um, you know, the company's value of their Bitcoin stash has gone up and up and up. Um, you know, some of the, the news from that uh, investor call was actually fairly interesting because, you know, the CEO uh, reiterated that they do not intend to sell. Uh, one of the questions was, do you intend to sell high and then get back in again lower? And he's like, no, we're going to hold. Um, in fact, uh, he reiterated that the company plans to buy even more Bitcoin as soon as they are able, um, you know, just keep putting it in there. Um, and now the news is actually kind of interesting. Um, if you go to hope.com, uh, today and tomorrow, the company is holding a Bitcoin for Corporations event where they're essentially going to be training people at other companies uh, how to uh, get into this Bitcoin market. Uh, essentially, they're trying to figure out how to uh, have other companies join the parade. Uh, famously, Michael Saylor uh, tweeted at Elon Musk and said that uh, Tesla should uh, get in on Bitcoin. Uh, Musk later changed his profile to just the single word Bitcoin um, and caused a big bounce in the cryptocurrency. Clearly, he's aware of this, even though maybe he's not on board. This is a big deal. And frankly, I know we, we are all laughing about it. You know, you said fake money and, and all this kind of stuff. Truth be told, this is not a terrible idea for a company to do. So I'm not a lawyer and I'm not gonna give you business advice, but let me tell you this. Um, the US dollar is the world's reserve currency and the US dollar has been massively propped up um, essentially by the value of the US economy. Um, unfortunately, uh, with the pandemic, uh, we've been basically creating more and more and more money which tends to devalue the currency. Obviously, China is incredibly strong. The yuan is, is, is rising. Um, even the euro is uh, not as weak as people say. And I think that the, the whole world is kind of looking around and thinking, you know, maybe we do need a, a reserve, a global reserve currency that's not called the US dollar. And, um, you know, frankly, uh, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, Michael Saylor has a credible point that Bitcoin makes sense as a global reserve currency. One of the things, one of the craziest things about it is that you cannot do any of the currency manipulations that happen in, uh, in real, you know, useful currency uh, with Bitcoin. Um, it, it just isn't mathematically possible. Um, so I don't think this is a terrible idea. And, and certainly it was a very good idea for MicroStrategy, at least until today. I think the big problem is that Bitcoin does fluctuate quite a lot against other global currencies going up and down. And this could cause tremendous problems for a company like, like MicroStrategy, which has essentially transformed itself into a Bitcoin uh, mutual fund, essentially. You know, I mean, basically people are buying in, obviously for the Bitcoin, not for the business intelligence software and services. And um, it's a big risk for the company and it's a big risk for any company that did this. So uh, speaking as a CEO of a company, I registered for uh, MicroStrategy's uh, event. I'm gonna watch his videos and see what he has to say, uh, but I'm not planning on putting our reserve currency into Bitcoin yet. Yeah, I've, I've been the kind of person who's a little bit kind of um, 
pessimistic when it comes to Bitcoin, just because I'm also the same way when it comes to stocks, when people are like, oh, yeah, I made, you know, 8,000% on that stock going up. I'm like, no, you didn't. You, you on paper, you're richer, but until you have dollar bills in your hand, you don't have money. You have the appearance of money. And I think maybe that's the thing that's always unsettled me about Bitcoin. But it could also be the fact that I had a project years ago, like, oh, maybe I should start a miner. And then my ADHD self didn't. And now I just kick myself every day that I didn't do that. But yeah, I mean, of all the bets that you could make, this isn't the worst. But in a world where we don't know what the best bet could be, I mean, it, it couldn't hurt to try. And if everything falls apart, then, oh, well, you did your best. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, I honestly, so far, it's looking pretty good. You know, one more thing that's kind of going in Sailor's favor is that um, many of the big global banks and, uh, you know, uh, insurance companies have been diving into Bitcoin in a big way. And there is a limited supply. Um, as of now, uh, the, the last couple of months, these big global investors are buying um, way more than the mining output. Uh, and that's one way of measuring sort of, um, you know, whether the market is tightening or loosening is, you know, because there's a certain amount of Bitcoin that gets mined every month. And, and right now, you know, you've got, you know, a big fund like Grayscale uh, buying up three or four times as much Bitcoin as is created on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. That's bound to make the price go up. Also, with this tremendous amount of investor money and Wall Street money sitting in Bitcoin on the blockchain now, you can also look at it as, you know, maybe these guys aren't going to let it fall. Um, you know, if, if they can probably keep it up as long as they want to keep it up, we may end up seeing this actually, this stupid, crazy, fake money idea actually work. And I'll point out one more thing. Uh, Michael Saylor is the only person I know to have majored in science and technology studies as an undergrad, except for yours truly. That's my major. I thought I was the only one at WPI. He majored in that at, at MIT uh, just before me. So, uh, hey, buddy, uh, got that in common. Uh, Tom, uh, no doubt you've heard of Emotet, the Egyptian pharaoh that Brendan Fraser is going. Oh, no, 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 that's a different, that's a different thing. No, Emotet is the menacing ransomware uh, collective that's been extorting users for the past five years by stealing their data and ransoming it back to them now that it has escaped from the mummy case. Um, it's a particularly nasty strain that constantly evolves and develops to evade countermeasures. Last week, it, could have, it couldn't evade them all, and a global corporation or coalition of police forces uh, moved in on the creators of the malware and Operation Ladybird, sweeping up the command and control functions and arresting two of the leaders of the gang in Ukraine. The group was responsible for causing upwards of $2.5 billion of damages, and during their arrest, uh, social media videos showed off cash and gold bars being seized during the raid. Um, Tom, is the future of malware prevention going to include police? Uh, what's going on here? Well, Emotet is like that, the the darker, uglier Sith Lord in the background that nobody ever sees, while you know things like WannaCry and, and other more flashy Darth Maul-ish Sith Lords are the ones out there causing all the damage to companies that you've seen. The problem with Emotet is it's very much based on a framework. So you'll, you'll download the framework, you'll make the targeted malware, it'll work, they'll get telemetry back from it, it'll get caught, and they'll figure out how it got caught, and then they'll patch it, and then that goes into the next revision. So essentially, it's like building your better malware with every release. And because it was based somewhere outside of the US, it was difficult to nail down. 
Well, it turns out that it, they finally got enough people torqued off at them so that they sent the police after them. And, and mind you, this was a globally coordinated raid, US, Canada, Netherlands, Ukraine, Germany, all over the place, because they knew they were going to have to take down as many of the CNC servers as they could as quickly as possible to get rid of it as best they could. And they still only managed to arrest two of the people who were really heavily involved in this. And this follows a lot of other news that we've been seeing where uh, like US Cyber Command is taking down TrickBot. Uh, there are some other uh, malware creators that are being targeted actively by law enforcement. And it goes back to a podcast that we recorded late last year on the Gestalt IT on-premise IT roundtable. Um, are we going to have to see police and governments getting involved in malware disruption in order to really make it stick? Because one of the problems that we're seeing is that there are some nation states that are kind of friendly to this kind of activity. And what they're basically saying is, oh, you guys got caught. Oh, slap on the wrist. Don't do that again in this place. But if you move across the street, you can restart and do whatever you want to do. Ultimately, that's not going to work. So what we're going to have to see is, you know, large, massive coordination from Interpol and these kinds of things. But but the Emotet thing is a really good sign that that's what we're going to start getting. Now, the question is, are we just going to drive these people back underground so that they're, you know, kind of in the shadows and doing things and then they'll pop out for a little bit and then go back? Because right now, it really does kind of feel like they're sitting inside of a, you know, well-protected castle and screaming that our fathers smelled of elderberries in, in, because they can't be touched at this point. And we have to stop that kind of behavior because quite honestly, when they're underground, they're easier to deal with because they're not recruiting adherents. They're not making big news and getting their name thrown around. And it is a lot harder to get funded that way. But, you know, the, take it for what it's worth. You take one down and may, this could be the Hydra where we strike off a head and two more grow in its place. But I think that we've struck off enough heads at this point that the solution is a lot closer to being a solved problem than it is just creating more mess. It's an interesting uh, conundrum, isn't it? And, and, and it kind of goes to the current uh, discussion about deplatforming on social media for people who have, you know, socially incompatible views. Um, essentially, uh, on the one hand, you look at it and you say, okay, if we drive these people underground, then they are basically freer to do their thing um, than they were when they were above ground. You know, if, if they are completely, you know, if, if you know, these uh, become completely hidden, completely out of reach of the, um, the, the law, completely out of sight, um, you know, does that mean that they're even more able to do what they do? On the other hand, um, I think that there's been a lot of sociological research that shows that actually deplatforming and driving things underground actually does help. And, um, you know, it's been interesting to me, this is something that I was looking at with relating, relating to the social media stories and deplatforming, but I see a, a strong parallel here. Essentially, by um, squashing the public obvious persona of things like this, you actually can help to tamp down the activity generally. Um, you know, it does uh, deprive them of some of the public, uh, you know, recruitment that they might have. It also deprives them from the ability to use a lot of public uh, resources, um, you know, and, and frankly, that might actually help. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, law and order guy, I guess. I'm saying, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it is a good idea to squash them down, even though, of course, they're going to go encrypted and they're going to use 
you know, Monero and, you know, whatever to to send money around instead of, you know, gold bars on social media. But, you know, I think it's going to help. I really do. Yeah, I think at this point, you know, it's, it's like using math problems to defeat spammers or CAPTCHA. Anything that we can do to increase the difficulty of them being able to do their operations is a win because it makes crime pay a little less. And uh, with that happy fun message, we're going to go ahead and draw this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown to a close. Thank you very much for joining us. We always appreciate you tuning in and leaving comments and uh, you know liking and subscribing. We, we have an episode that comes out every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time. Um, we have a lot of things coming up. Stephen, I know that you're a super busy person. What are some of the things you got on your plate that people can uh, tune in to check out? Well, um, right now, uh, we just finished uh, Storage Field Day last week, so there's a bunch of videos on YouTube. If you go to YouTube slash Tech Field Day, you can find those. Um, I'm also very, very proud of the work that we've been doing um, here on The Rundown, but also on the Gestalt IT Roundtable podcast and the Utilizing AI podcast. So if you check, uh, just Google Utilizing AI podcast, you'll find um, episodes of that every week on Tuesdays. and if you Google or look uh, at the Gestalt website, you can find more about the, uh, the uh, on-premise, which I promise I'm using correctly, on-premise IT roundtable podcast. I think that's probably the best uh, thing that I'd like people to look at. Yeah, as a matter of fact, if you head over to the website, gestaltit.com slash podcast, you'll find our latest episode, which is that Pat Gelsinger will save Intel. And if you were watching live whenever we found the news that Pat Gelsinger would be taking over the reins and Steven's shocked emoji face, um, you're going to want to tune in to see his thoughts about uh, how that whole transition is going to go. Um, you can find this episode along with all of our other episodes on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash video, where you're likely watching it now. Um, if you're watching it on YouTube, make sure you check out the website. If you're watching it on the website, go to YouTube and check out some of the other things that we do there. Um, you can also tune in on podcasts. We have uh, podcast feeds. So if you want to listen to this while you're mowing the yard or on your daily commute, um, you're more than welcome to do that. We appreciate you guys leaving a review and a rating. Uh, that helps other people find us and uh, spread the love of uh, people making fun of the news every week. Well, well, that'll do it for us. We're going to go ahead and sign off and uh, probably go buy a whole bunch of Bitcoin from Amazon so that Andy Jassy can keep his job another year. Um, But for Tom Hollingsworth and Stephen Foskett and the rest of the Gestalt IT crew, thank you very much for tuning in. And we will see you all next week and have a super sparkly day.